0: I suggest that we can prove the existence of God from the impossibility of the contrary. As Christians, we do not give up our intellect. The strongest evidence and argument for the existence of God is that without a belief in God, you can't prove anything. How can the material? That's the question I'm going to ask
1: you. I would say no. And can you give me an example of anything other than God that's immaterial? Lost logic. Welcome to the Revealed Apologetics podcast. I'm your host, Elias Ayala, and here at Revealed Apologetics, our goal is to equip believers to defend the Christian faith, and we want to equip you to do it in a way that is honoring to God and faithful to Scripture. So sit back, relax, get your thinking caps on, and let's dive into our topic for today. Right. temporarily just have office hours today. That's quite all right, I'm just appreciative that you're sharing some of your time. Okay. All right, well, um, the topics will be from uh, general topics for uh, uh, in regards to um, study. If someone wants to study theology, uh, how would they go about that? How do they know where to start? Um, and then we're gonna move into some more uh, theologically specific questions. And then, of course, uh, we'll go into um, another interesting topic, which a lot of our um, our readers and and uh, listeners like. Uh, they like to talk about issues of reform theology, which I, I understand that you are a uh, Calvinistic Baptist. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. I guess so. Uh, okay. So as long as people understand what is meant by it. Right. Right. So that that'll be great if, when we get to that that portion, uh, you can kind of describe your view there, and then we'll go into some of the. Uh, Kind of the interesting topics were usually related to, to those kinds of discussions. Okay? Now, Elias, is this going, is this going to be recorded? Uh, yes, this is going to be recorded. Um, and the the idea is to take portions of this and to make it uh, into a transcript where people can read uh, kind of the interesting portions, whichever we choose to put on the website. And they can read to you know, have an, an idea of how to study theology, how do we tackle some of these theological um you know questions and things like that. And it's just for okay. the purpose of uh to encourage people to kind of find theology interesting and and uh, kind of like that. Okay, and how long are we going to take? As long as you want. Uh I I don't have a set time and I know that you are very busy, so whenever you feel uh that we're done, About 30 30 35 minutes th- or something like that. Sure. Yeah, around there, 30 minutes, 40 minutes, whatever whatever you feel comfortable okay, with. let's see how it goes. <laughs> okay, sounds good. All
0: right. Um, you- and do you to say
1: I don't know if there's a question I don't really know about. Of course I understand that you are not omniscient. <laughs> Thank you <laughs> no problem <Far> from it <laughs> well further from it every day I complete I completely understand I, I do apologetics myself and do a lot of QA and, and um, there's sometimes the best answer is I have no clue that's a good question I'll look at yeah so yeah, um, good. first just uh, to, to make your head swell, I just wanna let you know how um, amazingly helpful I have found your systematic theology. I uh, okay. I feel like you live in my car because when I drive down to Virginia with my family, we have the uh, your lectures uh, based off the chapters of the book playing for hours and hours. Uh, my wife and I have a rule when we drive that whoever drives controls the uh, the audio content. So, I see. <laughs> all right, well, let's get started. Um, You are um, a scholar, uh, a professor, uh, a theologian. Uh, You teach at Phoenix Seminary. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. Um, Now, you are a busy guy. Obviously, you teach, you write. um, But how do you fit the time to do your personal studies? That's part one. And part two, what does that look like? I mean, do you wake up early in the morning? Do you wait till everyone's sleeping and you study at night? What does that look like?
0: that i need between seven and eight hours of sleep a night and um so after, when i wake up um i'm on the days i'm not teaching i don't have a deadline i have to get up with an alarm clock so i, I sleep well and uh, when i wake up i um get a cup of tea and a protein bar and, and go into my library and um open my Bible and spend some time reading a chapter in the Old Testament and a chapter in the New Testament, sometimes just one or the other, and sometimes both, usually both, and then uh, spend some time in prayer, and that total time takes maybe, oh, 40 minutes to an hour or something like that. It used to take 30 minutes, but I have a little more time now, and uh, the Lord seems to be blessing the prayer time, so I do that, and then... Um, Oh, actually, I didn't mention that I, I, I uh, three or four mornings a week I run for half an hour outdoors. And here in Phoenix, you can run most
1: most of the time. Actually, you can run year-round, year so I'm thankful for that privilege. <laughs> that is awesome. So, and then come back and have some prayer time with, with a cup of tea. And then usually Margaret and I will have breakfast together, and then I'll work for the rest of the day. Okay. And but now... This, Process process the new
0: emails first, get that out of the way, and then go
1: to the sure. writing project. Sure. Well, let's take a look at your your. Uh, I think a lot of our of our listeners uh, would find it helpful to take a look at what you just said. You read a chapter in the Old Testament, you read a chapter in the New. You just kind of sit down and read a chapter, A chapter, and you're done. Is there, you know, do you go yeah, into? Yeah, I um, I tend to underline. I was in
0: Ezekiel 31 this morning, I believe, and uh, first and P- uh, second Peter, second half of chapter one. Okay. Um, oftentimes I'll read it in my English Bible and then read it in my Greek New Testament. Okay. Um, and um, then uh, just ponder what uh, the Lord wants me to learn or take from those passages mm-hmm. uh, in my own life today.
1: Okay. So Now, how do you yeah. go... Oh, sorry, go ahead. That's it. How do you go about picking uh which books of the old testament and uh books in the newer chapters in the old and new testament when you wake up and is there is there a method to uh to the madness so to speak the
0: one one that comes next
1: (laughs) (laughs) okay all right um i just i read through the old testament
0: and start again read through the new testament start again um and um oftentimes in the middle of that sequence or Before I begin another one, I'll I'll do Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes more
1: often, more frequently. Sure, sure. How do you go about choosing a new topic to study? For example, I know theology is is such a broad topic. There's so many different areas and applications. Uh, How do you go about saying, you know what, I think I want to study this particular topic? That's
0: a good question. Um, It's a combination of sensing or noticing a need for something to be written, uh, a need in the church, a need among God's people. The systematic theology text came out of the fact that I was teaching theology, uh, systematic theology, and um, I didn't find a textbook that was understandable for students to use. And that I, I was using Burkoff's systematic theology, which is sure. a marvelous text, but... Um, he didn't quote Bible verses as much as just giving the reference, and students wouldn't look them up, so they didn't get the Bible. They didn't get the uh, impact of the verse because they didn't have any idea what it said. And uh, then he had untranslated French, German, <laughs> Latin, uh, Hebrew, Greek, some Dutch, perhaps. Sure. Uh, and it, it was very difficult. And then his vocabulary is so extensive; it was hard for students. And I thought let's see if there can be something that's a, a little more clear and uh, includes more attention on application to life and actually quotes the verses that i'm referring to okay. and that that led to systematic theology so there was a need for that and that was that was what Then i've written on biblical manhood and womanhood because we i and others thought that um the church was adopting a wrong or many people were adopting uh, a view that wasn't consistent with scripture on Men's and women's roles in marriage and the church. Um, wrote a book on politics according to the Bible because uh, I thought Christians were asking questions about how biblical teachings applied to law and government and politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's just uh, this past week, have come out with a new book that I co-edited called Theistic Evolution: A Scientific, Philosophical, and Theological Critique. Okay. It's it's, uh, published by Crossway. It has 33 chapters by 23 authors, uh, edited by Steve Meyer, uh, J.P. Moreland, and and me, and then two other scientists, uh, Chris Shaw and Ann Gager. And so uh, it's a thousand pages answering the idea that um, Christians can believe in evolution and believe the Bible at the same time. I just, I don't think that's
1: possible. Okay, and are you coming from and and folks like JP Moreland and others, are they coming from a more progressive creationist perspective? We didn't take a question we didn't take a position on the age of the earth and we didn't discuss the age of the earth. Okay. Just, Just it, it it has to be created by an intelligent all-powerful
0: designer and the Bible says that's God himself. Okay. Um but we didn't get into the details
1: of uh, old earth, young earth. Yeah. Just to, just a to prod just a little bit. Are you 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 seem to be the last time I've heard the, the the podcast. You seem to be more in support of an of an old Earth perspective. I lean that way, but I
0: don't have an official position. And uh, in my systematic theology, I mainly give arguments for the old Earth and for the young Earth position, sure. and uh, say I think both positions are valid. Just to give an example uh, where a decision is being made, if a faculty member came and applied to teach at Phoenix Seminary. And help to an old earth position, we would hire him. And if he held to a young earth position, we would hire him. That wouldn't be a barrier to employment. And if I were on a search committee for a pastor in a
1: church, uh, I would think either position would be acceptable. Yeah, good. Yeah, I, th- I think that that's an awesome way to go about it. It's not not as easy as people think uh, when you're defending them. No, the inside it's Yeah, I think it's part of the beauty of of the first chapter of Genesis. There's a subtlety there that I think allows for some flexibility. Um,
0: Well, there's a fascinating article that came out last week in the Westminster Theological Journal by Vern Poitras on uh, Age of the Earth. uh, question. Well, basically on the question of how long the days are in Genesis 1. And uh, he says in order to know how long the days are, you have to have some standard of measurement of time. Right and you say well they're 24 hour days well how long is an hour well it's 1 24th of a day well how long is a day well it's 24 hours that's circular
1: right how do
0: you How do you know how long an hour? well if you measure it by the rotation of the earth with respect to the sun if you don't have a sun on the first three days of creation then how do you measure right so um it's a lot more difficult to determine
1: than people realize and um Maybe God hasn't given us enough information in Scripture to make the decision about it. Right, and I think that that's okay. <laughs> that's okay. A lot of us try to we we desire, desire to have absolute answers to uh, to certain questions, and I think that can be yeah. Well, that's where I am problematic. Okay. All right, great. Um, okay, so um, another emphasis that we have uh, at the Historical Bible Society is um, is apologetics. And, uh, and I want what what I want to ask you is what is I mean, you can explain to us what is the relationship as you see it between systematic theology and apologetics how do they blend together how does one apply to the other and how can we uh, utilize say systematic theology in the defense of the faith
0: well um, Elias if apologetics is defending the truthfulness of the Christian faith systematic theology defines what the christian faith is you have to know what you're defending before you can defend it and um that question we just talked about the age of the earth um well that's that maybe is not the best example but um if you are debating someone who thinks that the doctrine of the trinity is impossible to believe it's very helpful to have an understanding of the uh, orthodox christian doctrine of the trinity before you try to defend it right or the deity and humanity of christ and how they work together every single point of doctrine can be challenged by the secular unbelieving world and we need to understand well what the teaching of the whole bible would have us believe on those topics Hmm. so that we uh, are defending something that the bible actually teaches
1: yeah all right, so so we have to understand what we're defending, which is, uh, what, defi- what defines what we're defending is systematic theology, our doctrines derived from scripture. Yes. Understanding how that works together and then applying that to the area of unbelief as we interact with, uh, with right. people who jump into faith. Yeah, you, you've put it very well. Okay, all right. Um, now, uh, when we study theology, we find that there are different kinds of theology. It's not just this one monolithic thing. Um, though, I mean, I'm familiar with what I'm about to ask you, but I think people would find this interesting. Uh, What is the difference between what's called systematic theology and biblical theology? Does one, is one left to just, you know, adopt the one over the other, or is there a way to uh, take these two kinds of ways of approaching theology and mix them together? Yeah, well, we hope that every every bit of theology is biblical and every kind of theology is biblical in a
0: broad sense. Amen. But in a narrow sense, the phrase biblical theology in the academic world is applied to a study of theology that um, proceeds chronologically, uh, or proceeds author by author through the Bible and traces development. The, you know, the Bible is arranged historically, Genesis at the beginning, Revelation at the end, and there's history of the of God's of creation, and then the fall, and then God's calling of Israel, and dealing with Israel, and then the coming of Jesus as the Messiah, and then his death and resurrection, the founding of the church, and the growth of the church, and then the revelation talking about things to come in the future. So the whole layout of the Bible is historical, and biblical theology traces step-by-step the development of doctrines. So um, uh, we could talk about the deity of christ is it how is it predicted in the old testament mm-hmm. and um, and then even in different sections of the old testament or the doctrine of the trinity how do we see hints of that in the old testament how is it developed in the historical books in the wisdom literature in the prophets and then moving into the new testament how does the doctrine of the trinity gain much further development and specific uh, details so biblical theology will trace those um, presentations of individual doctrines in different specific authors uh, or periods of time in the Bible. Systematic theology doesn't pay as much attention to the historical development, but arranges the material by topics. Okay. So um, we want to know what what should I believe about the doctrine of the Trinity, not quite so much about how it developed through the history of the Bible.
1: Now that's okay that's interesting because. Biblical theology—it sounds the way you explained it sounds very much like historical theology. Is that is that correct, or is there a difference there? Yeah, in the academic world, historical theology is used for something else. Okay.
0: Historical theology is used to talk about what people believed after the end of the New Testament up until the present day. Okay. So all the early church fathers, and then on through the Middle Ages, and then the Reformation with Martin Luther. And John Calvin coming after him, and then the Wesleyan revivals and teachings and the founding of the Baptists and the split into many Protestant denominations and evangelicalism today. Historical theology does that history of what happened in people's Christian beliefs after the Bible was completed.
1: Okay. All right. Okay. Um, now, when I think of... Does that of, make sense? No, Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, When I think of systematic theology, I think of the doctrines of Scripture, ordering them uh, according to certain categories, Um, and that, for some reason, it it kind of, in my mind, it makes me think of the importance of philosophy and how we do that. Um, Systematic theology is not just something we just categorize these these topics arbitrarily. Um, In your estimation, what role— does philosophy play in systematic theology and how we go about ordering the various doctrines and, and explaining the doctrines in the ways that we do? Well, Elias, I, I think
0: uh, one of the great benefits of philosophical training is it enables people or it helps people to gain a skill of thinking clearly and precisely, uh, explaining clearly and precisely what they mean and wording their ideas clearly and without um, uh, logical errors and, uh, and mistakes. My training is not in philosophy. My my graduate my, my seminary training and then my, uh, my PhD is in New Testament studies, and so it's in biblical studies, not in philosophy. Okay. Others who write on systematic theology, um, such as uh, John Frame, who was my professor, and uh, Miller Erickson, who's a friend, Uh, They have more training in philosophy, and uh, I'm thankful for that. I I think
1: um, that's uh, another approach that's uh, useful. Hmm. Now, what do you think about um, uh, William Lane Craig's comments in regards to, uh, I mean, he he seems to suggest that it is uh, something that's lacking within systematic theology are systematic theologians lacking in the knowledge of philosophy which actually affects their ability to explain and defend various <laughs> doctrines. <laughs> but, yeah, I don't want to well, I don't want to pitch you against them, but I, I thought those comments are interesting. It's no, I no, to well, it. Bill
0: Craig has been a friend for 30 or more years. Um, he um, he wrote an article about why theologians need philosophy, and one of his examples was my uh, what he thought was a mistaken view of talking about God's timeless eternity okay. whether God existed in time before creation or not and um, I think that God before he created I think there was no time no mm-hmm. passage of time God was timeless that's a classical Christian theology position um, but he thought it was contradictory to talk about um, uh, something happening before time because how could you measure before anyway it was a philosopher's dilemma but I didn't think he did a very good job in defending his viewpoint, so he and I had a little exchange in articles <laughs> that can still be found online. So, and um, we're we're friends, but we just had a little disagreement on that issue.
1: Sure. So, so is is your position that um, in prior to creation, if we can use that language?
0: Um, yes, you can, because um, there are three or four verses in the New Testament that talk
1: about glory being given to God. Uh, before all ages, and now, and forever. Okay, so that so thank you. <laughs> before before <laughs> and, God created. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> e- Ephesians
0: one three and four, He chose us in Christ. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world.
1: Right, which would include That's before. Yeah. All yeah. yeah too. Um, so 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 would your position be on time that God is timeless before creation, and timeless yes. after creation? Does God after creating uh, the heavens and the earth? does he still stand in some kind of timeless relationship uh, or a a timeless state uh, independent of of the activities of the universe? Within himself, I think God is still timeless,
0: but he interacts with, observes, and acts constantly within the creation. And as he acts within the creation, he, uh, of course, knows every moment
1: what is happening within his creation. So you would not find it... uh, contradictory, for example, to say that if God is timeless, God has neither, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, God has neither past, present, or future. But couldn't someone argue um, that for God, this statement is true? I created the universe. Is that statement true for a timeless God? Yes, because the Bible speaks
0: that way. Uh, Galatians, I believe it's chapter 4, when the time had fully come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. God was, or, or in Acts 17, Paul says, the times of ignorance God overlooked. Right. The Bible speaks about God doing things in the past. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1 1. The first sentence of the Bible makes that kind of statement. And it's important to be able to speak the way the Bible speaks. Right. Right. But that's why I'm happy to speak about before the creation of the world too, or before there was time, because there are a couple of verses in the New Testament, uh, First Timothy uh, chapter one, and I don't have the verse at hand right now. Okay. um, That literally in Greek, um, let's see,
1: pro chronon ionion. Yeah. Before before
0: times. Before times eternal, literally. Yeah. And, and I think the ESC I think our translation committee in discussing that verse uh, went with um, before all time okay. something like that
1: so so now I guess uh, I guess I'm, I'm a little confused I agree and I'm glad you said that because I think the problem with people who are primarily philosophers they'll talk about these concepts but not use biblical language they'll use philosophical language which I think sometimes is placed over what the plain words of Scripture say, and I think that's a danger as well. But what I'm trying to understand is, if God is timeless now, but the proposition, God created the universe, past tense, it seems as though, how can that be a past tense statement for God, if God is timeless, which I... Because he sees he sees events in time and acts in time. And he's speaking with reference to the, the creation. Okay. God created with respect to our existence in history that's a true statement okay all right well that God in time I've always found to be a very fascinating topic (laughs) Uh. (laughs) when I was a a very young professor J.I. Packer came to
0: uh speak at uh, Bethel College St. Paul where I was at where I was my first teaching job okay and I had the opportunity to give him a ride to the airport and I asked him something about God in eternity and he said you've gotten into one of the most difficult questions in theology, the question of the relationship between God and time. And I I was surprised by that. I didn't know it was
1: such a hard question, but I've I've, I've since learned that it is. Oh, yes. It's very, very complicated. Um,
0: Yeah, and I'm basically following John Frame, who was my theology professor at Westminster Seminary. Sure. Yeah, I had an
1: opportunity to meet Dr. Frame uh, down in Florida. I was very, very... um, very very smart guy. Very very uh, yep. nice and calm, and very good at explaining uh, explaining uh, explaining things. Um, and filled with knowledge of Scripture. Yes, and that's what is Scripture seeps through everything he says, and so I don't yep. feel like he's speaking yep. another language, uh, which I appreciate. Um, all right, so okay, so what role does philosophy play in systematic theology? It gives coherence. we we're, we're able to explain the views correctly and in a way that doesn't uh, violate uh, the laws of logic, things like that. Now, I'm going to get into a bridge. This is a bridge question, which will then uh, bring us over into a more specific area of uh, Reformed theology. Okay, um, I, I'm a Calvinist. Um, I interact with uh, all sorts of people, uh, most of which are Molinists. They identify as Molinists. Um, and so when I think of the question, what role does philosophy play in all of this, it makes me think of Molinism, since Molinism seems to be a philosophical... Um, uh, model that tries to reconcile another difficult topic in theology, uh, apart from God and time, which is the idea of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Um, So just as a broad question, what are your thoughts, without obviously going into as deep as we can go, what are your thoughts on Molinism as a philosophical model that tries to reconcile those biblical truths of God's sovereignty and human responsibility? What, What do you think of it as a as a perspective in, in your estimation? The evidence in the scripture that we should follow Molinism is non-existent as far as I can tell. What do you mean? The Bible doesn't speak that way about God
0: having the option of creating infinite billions of universes and choosing one which should bring the outcome that he okay. wanted while, while preserving libertarian free will among the creatures.
1: Right.
0: Well, I, it's a, it's yeah. just a...
1: I, so you don't see it I in Scripture? Stick,
0: no, I, I don't. I prefer to stick to the way the Bible speaks. He ordains all things according to the counsel of his will.
1: Right. I guess I suppose a Molinist would not disagree with that statement. Um, I mean, as, have I, as I've interacted with Molinists, to say that God can actualize any world that he wants is just to say that God is free to create in the way that he desires, that he's not determined right. to create and, and I, I I agree in God's total freedom to create however he wants. I understand that. Right. But but to construct a system out of that by which God picks a world in
0: which uh, libertarian free will is preserved among the creatures, I don't see that in
1: scripture. Okay, yeah. So so it'd be an issue of, of not not that God doesn't have the freedom, as the Molinist right, says but you, he can do whatever he will. Right. According but to his nature. We don't think he's using the freedom that he has to create to do what the Molinist says he's he's doing. Exactly. Okay, alright. And so that would be related to obviously the the lack of evidence for, say, a libertarian view of, of freedom, which is what they're trying to preserve as well. Right?
0: Uh yes, I, I think so.
1: Okay. All right. Okay, interesting. Um, all right, so let's let's move on more specifically to uh, to Calvinism. Um, we don't have to make the distinctions between, say, unless you think it's necessary. I mean, you are a Baptistic Calvinist, a particular uh, Cal- a Baptist, right? Um, and then of course- I hold to believer's baptism, and I hold to Reformed theology. And
0: outside of seminary-trained people, I find the word Calvinism is so frequently misunderstood. I tend not to um, voluntarily apply it to myself. But within the confines of people who have been
1: to seminary and understand what Reformed theology means, yes, then I am one. Right. Okay. All right, good. So um, very simple question. Um, Why are you a Calvinist? And apart from giving the answer, well, it's biblical— maybe you can provide some brief examples as to what convinced you in your own theological journey when you were growing up or however, whenever you actually came to, to adopt the doctrines of grace.
0: Elias, it's uh, difficult for me to reconstruct exactly how I came to the viewpoint that I hold. Um, okay. It was in college, largely, reading um, John Murray, Benjamin Warfield... Uh, John Calvin Institutes of the Christian Religion Mm -hmm. Uh, J. J. Gresham Machen reading a number of um, Reformed authors where page after page it just seemed to me I was saying yes that's what I've been reading in the Bible for my whole life
1: (laughs) yes I I understand
0: it wasn't a specific verse as as much as an avalanche of verses and um an overwhelming sense of this is the this strong view of the sovereignty of God and His ordaining all things that come to pass, but yet man's being responsible for, for our, we're being responsible for our choices, and God holds us accountable and blames us for the wrong that we do. Mm-hmm. Both of those things are taught in Scripture, and I want to hold both of them.
1: Yeah. Now, do you try to to reconcile them? For example, I know it's not required to reconcile. I mean, if it's biblical truth, it's biblical truth. Um, our inability to reconcile them does not make them false. But in interacting with people who disagree with that, with the, the Calvinist understanding of that, do you try to reconcile them? Do you give some kind of account as to how they can make sense? Or do you kind of just say, well, those are two areas that uh, the Bible doesn't explain the metaphysics of it it just tells us this is what's the case how do you go about that there are a number of christian doctrines where we reach the
0: end of the information that scripture gives us and we have to say that there is mystery here okay i i don't understand how it is that god can be three persons and yet one being one one god one have uh, exist as one being but have three because i When I know three different persons, um, they're all three different beings. Right. Three different um, existences. Um, So God in the Trinity is unlike anything that he has created. There are faint analogies, and, and people have used them in describing the Trinity, but there's nothing just like who God is. And so I think it's beyond our understanding. And so likewise with... God's ordaining all events that come to pass and fashioning the hearts of... He looks down from heaven and fashions the hearts of them all, it says in the Psalms. Um, uh, That I believe that that's true. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. He predestined us to be conformed to the image of His Son. Um, Those are uh, clearly taught in Scripture. And yet, uh, from beginning to end, from the Garden of Eden to the Book of Revelation, God holds human beings responsible for their choices and responsible for their actions. Mm. And Paul says in Romans 9, You you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? Um, But he replies, Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? So I think we just have to leave it there. Uh, God uh, ordains what comes to pass. But he's not held responsible for evil or sin. We are held responsible, and the blame is for us.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, now, what do we do? With, I hear this term all the time applied to the Calvinistic understanding of God's sovereign sovereignty over over everything. Uh, it's this this terminology of causal determinism, and I hear often um, this idea that uh, if God causally determines everything does that entail that we are robots, that we're machines? Um, and that's a common objection. How would you share with, say, someone who holds to the Reformed faith that, that is confronting that kind of objection, how would you res- would give them advice as to how to respond to that um, in a way to correct maybe the misapprehension coming from the objector, or uh, how would you respond to that?
0: How does the bible speak it speaks about us as real persons who respond and make choices and voluntarily choose to do this and choose not to do that it doesn't speak about us as robots so we're not so any inference that people would draw from a theological system that we are robots is just an incorrect inference we may not know why
1: or in what sense it's incorrect but it's it's not correct it's not consistent with scripture so, so do you know, the, I mean, I'm sure you've heard these objections. Have you, have you heard those objections couched in the language of causal determinism as being a, a terms that describe the reform view? How do people usually use that word as they're trying to attack the reform perspective? Elias, so I would have to have more background to uh, know exactly what's being meant by it before I could respond. Sure, so we would, we, we would want to ask the person to define their terms as to how they're, they're using those words. Okay. All right. Um, all right. So there's a, a, a couple of quick questions. Um, <laughs> I don't want to say quick because so I... Let me, let me say one more thing. Sure, it sure. It helps to draw an analogy to the doctrine of the Trinity.
0: I say God is three persons. Each person is fully God. My logical deduction is there are three gods. But that brings me into contradiction with other passages of Scripture. So I say somewhere along the line I made a mistake, even though I don't understand how I made a mistake. Right. But I want to be faithful to Scripture. How can God be three persons and yet one God, one being? I don't know. But it's not contradictory. It would be contradictory to say God is three persons and God is not three persons.
1: Right. So we can't... That isn't what we're saying. We're saying God is three persons and one God.
0: In the same way, it would be contradictory to say that God ordains all things that come to pass and God does not ordain all things that come to pass. That's a contradiction. The Bible never asks us to believe a contradiction. But if we say God ordains all things that come to pass, and yet we are responsible for our actions, that's not a contradiction. It's, it's, a, it's a mystery that we, in this life anyway, will not mm-hmm. fully understand.
1: Well, what if... Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. And um, again, I'm going to quote J.I. Packer. In,
0: just at, at a coffee break during the Translation Committee meetings of the English Standard Version Bible, he made this comment that I thought was very helpful. He said... Uh, the people who make uh, a lot of trouble and uh, get into uh, into misleading—I I can't remember exactly what he said—but it was a, it was a negative comment about Calvinists who think they've got everything figured out and can explain it all. Right. into
1: theological difficulties right we need to be able to stand humbly before the yeah we need to be able to do that without having to have an explanation for literally everything I guess I guess the the desire to have an explanation is not so much to satisfy an intellectual hunger but it is sometimes to ward off the accusation that our view is contradictory I mean I believe it's not contradictory but someone will say well I hear what you're saying But it seems as if what you're saying here is true, then it seems to be a contradiction in light of this other thing over here. And so I think... Yeah, then you go back to Scripture and
0: say, look, here's a dozen verses that all affirm this. Right. Do you believe them or not? That's where we are. Okay.
1: All right. Um, There's an issue within uh, these kinds of debates about God's desire um, to save people. Does God desire to save everyone? Things like that. Um, and there's discussions about man's ability and all that when God is, is, uh, extending his grace, does he extend his grace to everyone? And this, this particular chapter of the book of Deuteronomy always comes up, uh, which is Deuteronomy 30, which speaks of, uh, you know, this is a command that's not far from you. It's not difficult to, uh, to perform. Um, I tend to hear that verse used against, uh, the reformed perspective as to how, um man's ability works together with God's grace and things like that how would we explain and, and kind of just you know summary terms deuteronomy 30 within a calvinistic paradigm so as to be able to respond to people who bring up that 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 verse to uh or that chapter rather to to kind of challenge the the reform perspective um
0: Elias uh I am at a little bit of a disadvantage in that I'm someone else's office and I don't have a Bible in front of me to look at Deuteronomy 30. <laughs> sure, sure. I, I hate to answer a question about Deuteronomy 30 without looking at Deuteronomy 30, but I can't, I, mean, I can call it up on my iPhone here, just in a minute.
1: <laughs> I can turn, I have a Bible in front of me, I, I can turn there uh, for you and read it to you if that's um, okay.
0: Yeah, but that doesn't help me.
1: Okay. Because I can't see it. Okay, alright. Um, now my, I, I uh, it's, uh, It's going to to take too long. That's okay. Don't worry about it. But I can talk about God's desire
0: for people to be saved if that would be helpful.
1: That would be very helpful. Um, The first
0: thing I want to say is that everybody, Arminian and Calvinist alike, everybody agrees or should agree, I think they, if they think about it a minute, they'll agree, that God doesn't desire to
1: save everybody more than he desires everything else. Okay. So there are other because things he an Arminian, desires more. Arminian will say, uh, he'll say, well, God desires to
0: save everybody, and I will say, well, then is everybody saved? No. The Bible's clear that not everybody's saved. Well, I thought God desired that everybody would be saved. Well, he desires something more than saving everybody. Well, what is that? Well, that's preserving man's free will. Okay. Okay. Now, so you don't you don't think that God desires to save everybody in the sense that he will save everybody. No there's something more important preserving man's free will. I don't think that's um, consistent with how the Bible talks about God's decision, whether people are saved or not. I think it talks about uh, God choosing us and electing us and predestining us in Christ okay. but so when I say that God's eternal decision, a choice of some to be saved and some not, Uh, overrides his decision that everybody be saved. Uh, I'm not saying anything in principle, in in form of uh, statement different from what an Arminian would say. It's just that we have different things that we think are the higher priority than saving everybody. When uh, when the New Testament says, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to self knowledge of salvation, I think it's his revealed will, it's what he tells humanity, what he tells human beings, he desires them to do, in fact, he commands them to do, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Um, But God has uh, ordained the events of the world in such a way that his revealed moral will is not always carried out, he commands do not murder, but some people murder, he commands do not steal, but some people steal, he commands do not bear false witness, but some people bear false witness. So uh, in the same way, he, he, so I, I think he desires that no one murder but people murder because he's um, ordained the events of the world in such a way that uh, his revealed will, his uh, moral will is not always followed.
1: Okay, so his, his revealed will can be disobeyed, but his secret counsels and decretive will is... is stand forever and will always come to pass. Okay, all right, Okay. That, that, that's, that's helpful. Um, all right. Just maybe like one or two more questions. Are you are you still okay? Or
0: you know, I'm kind of running out of time here. I guess I could do it a couple more minutes.
1: Okay. How about how about make I'll make this the the last question. Okay. Okay. Um, there is this issue in uh, with discussions on free will, uh, that if God knows the future, is someone's choice. Genuinely free, and this issue of the distinction between necessity and certainty come up. Are you familiar with with that? Um, I understand. Understand the two words, the difference. So, so do you think that is a valid difference from our perspective? That since God ordains and knows the future, because He ordains what comes to pass, uh, do we are we warranted as Calvinists to use those terms? Uh, that just because God knows the future, that makes the future certain, but not necessitated. We're not kind of. Uh... Oh, I see. Well, maybe I'm not familiar with the distinction people are making, Elias. Because okay.
0: I think if God, I think if God knows the future, then it is certain what the future will be. Otherwise, He couldn't know it. Mm-hmm. Um, now, our classic Arminians will say God knows the future but does not determine it and they will appeal to mystery at that point and say we don't know how that happens.
1: Okay. So so we would
0: the not Godness will generally say God knows the future because he has ordained all that will come to pass.
1: Right. And and part of that ordination includes our choice being done uncoerced and in accordance with our nature. Yes, I like to say voluntarily voluntarily willingly we choose what
0: we want. We think about the decision and then decide what to do. Yeah. Okay. You thought about asking me this question,
1: then you asked me this question. Sure, okay. Uh, so to wrap things up, um, what would be your advice uh, for people who are saying, you know what, I, I wanna get into theology and I, I wanna really uh, um, understand how how all this works. What is your advice in terms of reading material? Uh, apart from your book, of course, yeah, Systematic Theology and Introduction to Biblical Doctrine is is amazing. Um, what are some other sources uh, that people can go to, uh, including your book, um, but other things as well, to kind of get started into this?
0: Oh, it so depends on the person and what kind of background the person has and how much interest. Um, I you know I was very influenced by John Calvin Institutes of the Christian Religion when I was still in college, and that's had an impact on so many people Mm -hmm. and Burkhoff's Systematic Theology as well John Frame uh, is a three volume Uh, well he has several volumes now but he's got a Systematic Theology which is excellent Um, I read a lot of John Murray from Westminster Seminary and he's always had a positive impact on me Okay. Um, so um, but
1: that's a start okay all right. Well, thank you so much. You have no idea. I really appreciate you giving me this time. You're very welcome, Elias. I don't know
0: if those answers have been helpful or not. They're just off the top of my head, but maybe the Lord will use them.
1: Well, praise God. I really do appreciate it. I, I wish you well, and I'm um, um, looking forward to continue to recommend your, your book, Systematic Theology. It's, it's been a major help for me and uh, has influenced uh, a lot of my own thinking, so thank you very much. Thank you. All right. You take care and God bless. Bye. Bye-bye. bye Thank you very much for listening to the Revealed Apologetics podcast. Uh, if you have any questions um, that you would like me to cover in a podcast episode, uh, please email them to me to revealedapologetics at gmail.com. Also, we very much um, appreciate your prayers. And if you wish to support Revealed Apologetics financially. uh, You can by doing so. um, We have a uh, PayPal account set up. Uh, You can um, uh, help us out financially um, at PayPal.me slash Revealed Apologetics. PayPal.me slash Revealed Apologetics. And that would be uh, greatly appreciated if if you were able to help out financially. If not, um, we we definitely would appreciate uh, prayer. Um, And um, once again, if if you have any questions uh, that you'd like me to cover, RevealedApologetics at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. Take care and God bless.